Hi, hello, and welcome. This is the Zonecast, where we interview emerging professionals, entrepreneurs, and academics. And uh, today we have with us on the show uh, Christy Lamb. Uh, she is the founder of Bold Health. Uh, hi, Christy. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, and uh, I'm definitely excited for this particular interview and learning more about yourself and also about uh, mental health care. Uh, can you share your professional and personal background? Sure. Yeah. So um, I am a physician uh, trained in family medicine and psychiatry. Uh, my undergrad degree was in neuroscience, and I took some time before going to medical school to kind of figure out uh, where my interest really, um, where I wanted to drive my interest in regard to tr further training. So I got a master's in philosophy and social theory. I worked in a residential treatment facility for runaway teens and really fell in love with um, mental health and mental health treatment, went to med school um, and uh, came out to San Diego for the University of California, San Diego combined residency in family medicine and psychiatry. Um, I had the opportunity to work in uh, homeless shelters and in jails and in concierge clinics and a myriad of different environments. And during my training, really fell in love with psychotherapy as well, and realized in all those different environments that one of the that um, I it was clear to me I was going to need to create my own space in order to practice medicine the way that I um, thought would be the most effective for patients. And so, uh, created Bold Health in 2017 um, to uh, gather together like-minded practitioners. Um, have a clinic where uh, we could treat higher acuity um, by having a, a collaborative team model um, and have kind of been off to the races ever since. It's, it's been, um, you know, speaking of the entrepreneurial piece, you know, I'm highly trained in, in medicine and in psychiatry and uh, the, the, I think the, the hardest learning curve in all of this was the business side of things of, of kind of stepping out of a system of healthcare and, and, uh, self-educating in regard to the business and uh, how to really be a successful entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Um, so I'm curious, like, um, um, when did you discover that you had an interest in in uh, counseling, psychiatry, uh, and mental health care? Was that early on or something uh, that you realized that you had this interest? Uh, can you talk more about that? Yeah, you know, um, I, uh, I was, I've always been someone who loved hearing people's stories. And um, I think that uh, I was came from a family, my father was a physician, um, but was, he was a surgeon, but was also trained in family medicine and was raised um, following him around at, he would volunteer at the mobile clinic in our local community. Um, the notion of giving back and the notion of, um, providing care to those who might otherwise not receive it was kind of ingrained in me in a very young age. And so, um, it was very clear to me that I wanted to work in an environment where I felt like my day-to-day -day work was affecting someone directly. Um, and there was no greater realm than uh, psychiatry where someone comes in in massive crisis, uh, where um, I could be a person who could connect with someone and uh, help support them through those times of crisis. And, and I think it kind of followed the trajectory of, of um, how I was raised and aligned with uh, kind of my my temperament and my personality and I'm kind of a caretaker at heart um, and then it was in medical school that I learned you know kind of this balance of uh, therapy being this very compassionate uh, occupation and yet also learning the competency behind it and that's where um, extensive training in psychotherapy became really imperative for me in med school I learned about the meds and how to how to do more biological treatments. And it was really important to me to feel like I was skilled in all the different realms um, of uh, kind of treating the human condition. I had a love of uh, philosophy and just became really interested in people's stories. And, and um, uh, you know, I think even within the medical realm and the family medicine side of things, I would so often see patients who came in with physical ailments, 
that clearly had origins in um, mental health issues. So whether that be, you know, a stress response or um, chronic pain or um, even poor self-care that was related to depression. And so it seemed to me that um, being able to treat, treat the underlying root cause um, of, the, of the mental illness um, was, was kind of getting, uh, getting to the core of the issue. So I, I really fell in love with, um, with psychiatry in, in medical school, um, but even from experiences earlier on. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I want to uh, touch on is, uh, is anxiety. Um, mm. Can you talk about um, what is anxiety and why we feel it in the first place? Absolutely, yeah. So this is uh, one of my areas of expertise and a place where um, that I'm pretty passionate about talking about because the uh, psychotherapy education that I had received, um, apart from psychiatric training and medical training, was so distinctly different and really made so much more sense to me um, that um, that I'm I, I love talking about it. Be happy to share about it. So um, you know, going through. Uh, a master's in philosophy and four years of residency or four years of medical school and five years of residency, I had a supervisor after my training who asked me, you know, what is anxiety? And I was like, well, you know, it's kind of like when you're stressed or nervous and I couldn't really define it in a very clear way. Even after all this training and after treating people with anxiety, right, using meds to treat anxiety, um, it was this kind of felt sense of feeling kind of nervous. And it was through intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy that I really started to understand um, a biological understanding, a physiological understanding of anxiety. And so the, um, the conceptualization is that anxiety is nothing more than a stress response in the body and that it's actually imperative for our safety that we want our nervous systems to have a response when something uh, in our environment changes or shifts, or if we have feelings come up inside, we want to have a response. So if a ball, if a baseball comes through the window, I want my heart rate to increase. I want to kind of move out of the way. The problem is, is that for many of us, we have become um, anxious over the feelings that come up in us. And so we can have all different kinds of responses that keep our feelings at bay and cause a stress response in our body. Um, in ISTDP, we conceptualize kind of three different levels of anxiety. The first level of anxiety is in what we call the striated muscle. So this is the voluntary muscle that we have control over. And so this is the kind of anxiety that you'll often see. So if somebody has a bouncing leg or is fidgety, right, this is the anxiety that of the person that you see in a room and you're like, oh, that person looks anxious. Interestingly, that's actually the lower level of anxiety because it's in the striated muscle. This is the place where we can control. So if my shoulders are up in my ears, I can drop them. If I'm fidgeting, I can actually stop doing that and I can take a deep breath and kind of regulate. When anxiety gets higher, it goes into the second level of anxiety, which is the smooth muscle. And this is the muscle we don't have control over. So this is when we get stomach upset with diarrhea or nausea or constipation, burping, migraine headaches, mediated through the vasculature that we don't have control over the blood vessels that can clamp down and cause migraines. Um, and so this is the level where people who have autoimmune conditions or allergic reactions or asthma can have exacerbations in times of high stress. This is also that middle level where our autonomic nervous system, the part of our nervous system we don't have control over that regulates our heart rate and our blood pressure and our digestive system can get affected. Um, most of us have heard of the fight or flight response from our autonomic nervous system where our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our muscles get activated as if we are about to fight or, or, or flee from, um, from a stressful um, stimulus. So this level of activation can happen. We can start sweating. When it gets even higher, and this is the anxiety that a lot of people don't know about, it can dump into what's called the parasympathetic nervous system. And this is, again, part of the autonomic nervous system we don't have control over, but can cause us to have almost like this sensation of going possum. So this is where heart rate drops, blood pressure drops, people get fatigued, they can feel numb and tingly or feel like they have kind of jelly limbs, can't really stand up. Um, this is where people can get ringing in their ears. Um, and many people 
um, in once they've hit this level of anxiety are often kind of close to dumping into depression at times. So this is high level of anxiety, but many of us can get it on a spur of the moment, just all of a sudden anxiety pops and we can have feel kind of lightheaded. Higher level of anxiety, the third and highest level of anxiety, we call cognitive perceptual disruption. And this is where the brain kind of goes offline. So this is where people can dissociate, people can have foggy vision, people can, um, in severe cases, can hear things or see things, get paranoid. Um, and knowing these different levels of anxiety can be very helpful because in these different levels of anxiety, we need to intervene in different ways. So first and foremost, having a conceptual physiological understanding of anxiety allows us to normalize it, to say, I'm not just crazy, this isn't just out of the blue, but that anxiety follows these very clear pathways and we can track this um, very clearly with video videotaping sessions. You can see these different levels of anxieties uh, kind of pop up and down. And once we know it, uh, if our head goes offline or if we have ringing in our ears when we're really anxious, we can, we can sometimes even self-soothe and say, oh, that's a sign of my anxiety. I'm just anxious right now, right? And so there is something about the calming effect that says this all makes physiological sense because so many people with anxiety think that it's out of the blue, that they're the only people that experience this bad of anxiety. They can feel like they're going crazy and a kind of a bully in their own minds can come in and say, oh my gosh, you're so anxious, you're so crazy when really this is just the human condition. This is how the nervous system works. And we see it again and again in sessions where people will be really popped with anxiety, maybe feeling kind of out of it. If we do some grounding exercises, get some deep breath work going, actually activate those striated muscles, they can come down, sigh and take a deep breath and their anxiety can regulate. And so we can create a roadmap that helps people feel more in control of their anxiety than their anxiety being in control of them. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's definitely a good to have this understanding as to how um, how anxiety can flow through the body and through the different muscles. Even you even mentioned like the digestive system, you know, and your mental perception. It's it's you know it's it's like something that can affect your body. Uh, and Absolutely. This is, a, this is a classic example of how the mind and body are so connected. What do you feel mentally? can also affect you um, physically. And, and you mentioned a tip, which is, you know, breathing exercises and, and grounding can help uh, people cope with that anxiety and calm down and relax. So that's a great tip. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to notice that the more that we can get to know about our own anxiety, know where we are in those different levels, we actually want to intervene differently. Right. So if someone is in that lower level striated voluntary kind of clenched muscles, we want to relax. Right. We want to take a deep breath and relax the muscles. If someone is feeling somewhat dissociated, their brain feels offline and they're kind of floating around or they feel lightheaded. We don't want them to actually relax more. We want to get them into their bodies. And so sometimes when I have patients who really pop with anxiety or are in panic, we'll have them do what we call isometric muscular contractions. So we'll have them push their hands together and um, create some tension in their shoulders and in their arms or get down on the ground and do a plank or sit up against the wall in a wall sit and activate their quad muscles, the large muscles that we can contract to get the blood flowing and to actually get them back into their bodies. So at the highest level and at the lowest level of anxiety, we actually wanna do two totally different things to regulate the anxiety. And this can be really important because if people are kind of feeling dissociated or foggy headed, and do a relaxing meditation, they may actually feel worse, which sounds counterintuitive, but if we understand the physiology behind it, we can understand how then to better intervene for ourselves. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, definitely, that's a good tip. Um, one thing I also want to talk about is, uh, is a term that we hear a lot, which is uh, OCD, mm -hmm. uh, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. So, uh, can you talk about what it is and what are the symptoms? And perhaps you can also differentiate between uh, the fact and, uh, and the myth uh, or the perception of it uh, and shed some light on that. Absolutely. Yeah. So obsessive compulsive disorder um, is an anxiety disorder where people are um, driven to compulsions 
um, based on obsessive thoughts. So, you know, I, I should I should give the background that um, while this is a primary psychiatric diagnosis, the way that I conceptualize psychiatric diagnoses is that again that this is not necessarily something that is just um, your brain is broken in some way. Now there are very clear biological and genetic underpinnings for a lot of these disorders, and so they do run in families. But it's not the idea is that there that this is not something that someone just has a broken brain, but they may have a predisposition for their brain to operate in a certain way. And then under stressful situations, this may be a way that their brain uh, kind of goes offline in its own way to keep them from a stressful situation. So very commonly what we see in OCD is that there will be someone who is otherwise high functioning, often the characteristics of people with OCD, they're often very perfectionistic, they're sometimes very hard on themselves, right? And in a higher stress environment, they may get anxious, may not even act, actually un recognize any internal anxiety and go to um, very obsessive thoughts, sometimes intrusive thoughts where they may have images of um, harm to themselves or harm to others, catastrophic events. Um, uh, sometimes there are sexual images or things that are very disturbing to them. Um, other people will go to compulsions or there may be a mix of the two, compulsions being um, uh, feeling pulled or drawn to an activity that doesn't quite make sense for the environment that they're in or that they rationally know the door is locked, but they may feel a compulsion to check it numerous times. And this really becomes um, a disorder when it cause problem, causes problems in people's lives. So um, the, the, the reminder that all of us may get in the car and be like, did I turn the stove off or did I lock the door? And go check, right? This does not mean that you're OCD, um, but this is where it actually becomes such a, um, a problem that it causes dysfunction in people's lives. So they're late to work or they can't focus or they can't get other things done or they're washing their hands to the point of um, their hands being chapped and cracking and sometimes even bleeding. Um, and so uh, differentiating between the notion that um, we all have our little quirks or can second guess ourselves, but this is when it really becomes destructive in our lives is when we get a diagnosis of OCD. OCD is often very responsive to medication, um, but also there are a number of different treatments that we can use um, through some exposure therapy, um, dealing with the actual obsessions and compulsions th themselves. But I actually find that often OCD symptoms increase during times of high stress, that it's almost, we can almost conceptualize it as a self-torturing mechanism that works in the effort of keeping us from the discomfort in our current environment. So very often when people are having difficulty at work or in relationship, they have a lot of feelings that come up in those relationships that then can make them anxious. And then their symptoms get really high. And then they get kind of trapped in this symptom, this OCD symptom uh, kind of loop of obsessions and compulsions, and they lose track of the feelings or they can kind of push away from the painful feelings of what's going on in their current life. So very often, there, this is a mechanism that gets flared up in times of high stress and in distress in people's lives. Um, it may be useful to also differentiate between um, OCD and kind of the, I think in common jargon, we'll say, oh, I'm so OCD when we think of somebody who's kind of anal retentive or um, particular about certain things. Um, and this is a very different, um, uh, obviously OCD is a very, um, can be a very debilitating and a very severe um, psychiatric mental illness, um, very different from somebody who's just a little bit, you know, compulsive. Now, that being said, there is um, a, a diagnosis called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And this is where that person who's kind of anal retentive is so anal retentive or so compulsive or so particular that it also gets in the way of their life. So the difference between these two, between obsessive compulsive personality disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder, it's there, there really should be a more distinct names. But with personality disorder, the, the particularities feel what we call syntonic. They make sense. So I'm a little on the obsessive compulsive uh, personality disorder side of things. I'm a little anal retentive. I like things the way I like them. I like my, you know, color coding my clothes in my closet, right? 
but the thing that's different is first and foremost, it doesn't cause many, it's not to the point where it causes many problems in my life, but it also, it's, it, it, in my mind, that's the way it just should be. Right. And so it's less distressing in many ways for people who are maybe having relationship issues or because they're so particular about things and need things a certain way, it can obviously become a disorder and become a problem. But that's very different from OCD, where the person who's having these compulsions or these rituals or these intrusive thoughts is really distressed by them. It's very what we call dystonic. It doesn't make sense to them. They don't like it, as opposed to somebody who's like, no, I like my clothes the way I like them. The person who's washing their hands 20, 50, 100 times a day is like, I know this doesn't make sense. I don't want to be doing this, but the pull is very strong. And so this is where it can be really debilitating. And this is where people can really then also develop on top of the OCD shame and a real low self sense of uh, self-esteem. They can start to isolate. And there's very commonly a concurrence with OCD with depression um, because um, it's, it's such, it can be such a debilitating disorder. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you mentioned was really interesting. And uh, maybe uh, I may not have heard this before. I mean, obviously, we know that people who have OCD, uh, they might be genetically predisposed to it, as you mentioned. So by birth, they might have something which makes it possible or likely that they might experience symptoms at some point in their life. And you mentioned that a high stress situation can be a trigger for the symptoms. But you also mentioned that um, uh, during high stress situations, these OCD symptoms can come about as some kind of coping mechanism to take your mind away from real problems into these man-made, OCD-made problems, which I, which, which is a very new, um, I, I haven't heard this before, and this is something new and interesting. Um, and um, if, if it is a coping mechanism, it's not a very good one because all it's doing is taking no. away from one. Exactly, it's, you know, it's horribly another. destructive. Yeah, and so <laughs> this is, you know, this is a, a concept that, so um, I'd love to share with you a concept that is, kind of at the root core of this type of therapy, it's called the triangle of conflict. And it's basically the idea that in relationship, we all kinds of feelings can come up and that there's no one that we're in relationship with that doesn't bring up mixed feelings. So I love my husband very dearly. He also can make me really angry, right? And, and, and navigating those mixed feelings can be very difficult. And for many of us, um, we push away any negative feelings but if we think of our emotional system kind of like plumbing as physiology, if I push a feeling down, the energy that it takes to push down a feeling translates into anxiety. So if you've ever tried to hold back tears or um, not be angry, right? Anxiety comes up. Our chest gets tight, right? We might get tight in the throat. We might get kind of squirmy. Holding back a feeling translates into anxiety. And then because anxiety feels so uncomfortable, we will often do things to either discharge out the anxiety or to defend against it. So rather than feel the, the feelings that originally came up, I might get anxious and then it can dump into substance use. It can dump into depression. It can dump into um, extra donut eating for me. Right? I'll eat an extra, you know, if I'm stressed, I might eat more donuts or being a little anal retentive, I might clean a little bit more, right? There are all different things that we can kind of dump into to discharge out this anxiety over the real mixed feelings that can come up in our lives. Um, it's, a, it's a theory called attachment theory that says that we learned how to operate around our feelings in our childhood with our primary caregivers. So if I have a parent who, is, who can't tolerate any anger from me, who gets angry back, who's aggressive, I may learn in order to stay connected to my lifeline for food, clothing, and shelter, unconsciously we learn to navigate our own emotions in order to stay connected. So I may learn, I don't get angry. Must be my fault, must be something I'm doing. I learn to push that away. Now in a healthy parent-child relationship, a parent would say, I know you're angry. You can't kick, you can't bite, but of course you're angry that I'm not giving you a cookie. That's okay, it's okay to be angry. Most of us didn't get that education, right? Most of us told, don't be angry. Don't, I'm the parent, I get to tell you what to do, right? And so we learn it's not okay to be angry. Whether And sometimes with cases of child abuse and trauma 
and neglect, <laughs> these cases are extreme. And that this coping mechanism to turn it back in on ourselves or to hide away our emotions is a matter of life and death. It's incredibly resilient that our minds are created to, to without even knowing that we're doing it, learn how to repress certain feelings. The issue is, is that, again, like plumbing, it, the energy has to go somewhere. So often this results in anxiety or it results in it being discharged out in certain ways. And this is where some of these really destructive defenses come in. So if I learned that certain feelings aren't okay, I may as an adult say, oh my gosh, I got in a fight with my husband and I'm really mad at him, but I'm not allowed to be angry with him. That makes me really anxious. I may go drink to numb it out. It's fine. I'm, it's fine. We'll just, I'll just drink and we'll be fine tomorrow. I may... Um, have really bad OCD symptoms that night. I may dump into depression. I may turn it back on myself and say, gosh, if I just hadn't, you know, it, it's, it's not his fault, right? Lots of different things that we could do to not have to navigate these really complex and difficult feelings that we have in all of our, I mean, I love my dog, right? But sometimes he pees on the carpet and I get pissed at him, right? And so Every single human that we interact with, we're going to have mixed feelings about, about, and if we can't tolerate those feelings and work through them and let them just metabolize, right, we can have really destructive consequences um, that, like you said, it doesn't make much sense. But if we think about it through this attachment theory model, the, the brain that was creating these mechanisms was three years old, four years old, five years old. So it's actually brilliant for a three-year-old to come up with this, it may not be working when we're 45. And hopefully, and I think that's a lot of the work of therapy, it is to see what mechanisms have I created in my life that are now destructive, that may have saved my life previously. When I, If I was three and I was in an environment with somebody who was aggressive and abusive, to repress all of this in whatever means was possible may have saved my life but now is destructive in relationships because I can't tell my partner that I'm angry or I can't stand up for myself or I turn everything back on myself or I have to numb this out in some way. And this is where substance abuse, OCD symptoms, eating disorders, all of the primary psychiatric diagnoses, um, you know, according to this model, right, can really fit on this triangle as the, the destructive things that we may do in our lives we're at some point a way to try to take care of ourselves from the anxiety that comes from repressing feelings. Does this make sense? I know I kind of it took a deep dive there into this. <laughs> no, no, it's it's uh, as I mentioned, like um, the the coping mechanism theory of OCD is not something that I've heard before, and this is something new. And um, I I I'm familiar to the concept that you know our brains or our subconscious can can try to create a coping mechanism which is destructive unhealthy does not make sense um but it's the brain i guess or the subconscious is actually trying to be protective but it ends up being destructive absolutely um, yeah i have a patient so i was just gonna say i have a patient who had really bad OCD cleaning behaviors. So would clean for eight hours a day. Um, and she didn't want to be, but it was, she was really just um, pulled to do this. And she had, we did medications, we did therapy, and she was doing a lot better. Um, she had a very stressful situation come up in her marriage. And all of a sudden her symptoms were incredibly right back to eight hours. She'd gone down to two hours a day. She's back to eight hours a day. And when we were able to get really clear about her, her complex mixed feelings towards her husband, allow those to be okay, metabolized for them to get into couples, for, he, for her to have a voice to speak about it, her symptoms went back down. Um, so it's this incredible, um, you know, uh, uh, direct correlation when we can see the pattern. And so I think that's part of the work of the therapist is to help the patient understand, uh, or for all, whether patient or not, right? I think it's, I'm so curious about and fascinated by how did this mechanism get, how does it make sense? How does this mechanism, not just something random or a broken brain, but how does it make sense? How do we conceptualize this and see what's driving it? What's the engine of this so that we could potentially undo or take care of ourselves in a different way, in a way that isn't as destructive, maybe rather than repress my anger and get anxious and you know, uh, have OCD symptoms, maybe if I can notice it or I can notice my anxiety, maybe I'll go for a run 
if I'm not in a place to actually, you know, access these feelings that the more that I can understand and have a roadmap of what's happening, the more I can intervene on my own behalf, potentially in a less destructive way. Mm -hmm. So I guess the approach or one of the approaches should be to understand what real problems the brain is trying to cope against uh, with, with these symptoms and, and handle those problems head on. You got rather it. than allow your brain to, you know, use these destructive ways to not think about it or to, you know, put your head under the sand and just, you know, um, take your mind away from it. So that's that's an, that's also a very interesting approach, and 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 this is something new that I'm learning about OCD, which I which I didn't know that it, it is it, it might be a flawed coping mechanism. For, exactly, for and I think that it, it's it's so important is the caveat to that that. Um, it's not, it's unconscious, right? So it's not like somebody wakes up in the morning is like, I know I'm angry with my husband, but I think what I'll do is wash my hands a hundred times instead. (laughs) Like, right. Like nobody says that. Um, and, but if I know that this mechanism exists in me, then I can start to be curious. And if I see the hand washing, I can say, what's going on? Mm -hmm. Can I regulate my anxiety? And what am I, what's going on here? Why am I so stressed? Why am I attacking myself with this mechanism right now? Right. So it's now now that you mentioned that the high stress situations are a trigger for, for OCD symptoms. So I guess we can imagine that during the pandemic, this mu- this must be a bad time for OCD patients, and they must be going through some symptoms and distress. Absolutely. So I would say that across the board, again, if we kind of conceptualize this on this triangle, that at the bottom of the triangle is these core feelings that get pushed down, anxiety goes up, and then we may dump into whatever our destructive defenses of choice are, um, then uh, symptoms across the board, I think, are much higher. Because if anxiety is our um, kind of thermostat of, okay, low anxiety, I can regulate it, or maybe I can tolerate the feelings that are coming up, great higher anxiety, I think everyone's baseline anxiety is higher. Just walking into a public place and seeing someone with a mask on, right? Our nervous systems are jarred by, you know, here in the States, we're back at, you know, some grocery stores, there's no more toilet paper again. And, you know, it's, it's this waxing and waning of just the, and the, and I'm not, you know, even if I don't have COVID or don't have somebody in the hospital with COVID right now, the way that it's affecting our lives um, it, in, in a very even superficial way and then add on financial stressors or homeschooling kids or, right. It just raises the baseline level of anxiety that may make us more likely to dump into whatever our symptoms may be. So depression is up, substance use is up, marital conflict is up, OCD symptoms are up across the board. And so acknowledging this can be really important so that we can, um, you know, I, I was working with a patient this morning who, um, is an ER nurse and was super anxious and was having tension headaches. And, um, we just created some space to try and allow, just to get clear about what he was feeling about being on the front lines, about seeing what he's seeing on a daily basis. And he had this huge outpouring of grief and his shoulders dropped, his breath became more slow and steady and his headache went away. Right. That if we can allow ourselves to feel what we are feeling about what's going on, even if we can't change it, right, our nervous system will calm down. It is as though if we can allow whatever feelings are there and let them through and metabolize them and potentially use them as information and move us in certain ways, then our anxiety doesn't have to be kind of the clamp down to keep our feelings at bay or these defenses or destructive ways of being to keep all those feelings at bay. Does that mm-hmm. make sense in the no absolutely i guess i guess the key idea here is you don't want to uh, or you should not um, try to distract yourself from real problems don't try to suppress your thoughts and emotions because they might find another way to come out to express themselves exactly be destructive for you Yeah. And we see this in substance use uh, treatment all the time where people will kind of white knuckle and, you know, just get sober, but not work on the reasons as to why they were using. And so their addiction will just jump to something else. They'll either pick a new substance or all of a sudden now they've got a sex addiction or a gaming addiction, or they're distracting in some way. 
But some people are fortunate, they find like an addiction in fitness and, you know, so many uh, extreme athletes are, are in recovery, um, right? That, that it gets channeled in a different way. But if we don't treat the underlying problem, it's going to end up kind of going somewhere. And it means that we, you know, can we allow that the feelings that come up in us are more than okay, even if we don't know why they're there, don't completely understand them. But if we can just let the feelings be without trying to repress them, without trying to push them away, we're going to be a lot more mentally healthy. And often when we allow ourselves to start to feel, we find clarity. It's like, oh man, yeah, this has been really hard. I haven't, I haven't been compassionate with myself. Wow. Maybe I need to make some more space for myself so that I am, you know, like this ER uh, nurse being able to say, yeah, like if someone dies on your shift, would it be okay to give yourself some space to, to grieve, to acknowledge and grieve that? Cause it's going somewhere. Right. And he was anxious as all get out and was more irritable. But the more that there was space to just process that and create space to feel it, the tension goes down. We've been habituated and socialized to avoid our feelings and to avoid looking at our anxiety. Most of us were taught to like not have a feeling and just push through. I would suggest that actually we, we work to do the opposite, to actually look toward the feeling, to look toward the anxiety and find out what it's telling us, to get the information that our nervous system that is wired for it is trying to tell us, that it's just data. That if I feel angry, there's someone in my environment that's that I might need to set a boundary with. There's something in my environment that's offensive, right? If I feel guilt, it lets me know I need to repair something. I've done something that doesn't fit with my moral compass, right? If I feel grief or loss or sadness, right? It means that there's a hole and that maybe I don't necessarily need to just fill it, but maybe I can acknowledge I need to take care of myself right now because there has been a loss. That our feelings, if we look toward them, give us this really important information that so many of us were, again, socialized or taught or it was modeled for us, whether implicitly or explicitly, that it's useless, they, they get in the way, they're a problem, just push through. But I would suggest that that mentality has mental health diagnoses and symptoms through the roof because nobody's looking and trying to understand and depathologizing our feelings say no of course you're angry absolutely you're full of grief right now can we just allow that to be and let it metabolize and let it pass through rather than having to deny it or push it away right that it could be okay for people to feel full of grief right now full of rage right now with everything going on and that, and that that could be okay. And that we could feel that and feel it deeply without having to be anxious or without having to cover it with some, you know, whether super destructive or maybe less destructive mechanism. Mm -hmm. Definitely some interesting insight you shared about OCD and this definitely provides a better understanding uh, of, of what OCD is and why um, uh, and how it expresses itself. and. Uh, with, I guess with a good intention, but uh, to help you cope, but at the same time, it, it, it can be stressful. Um, one thing that I want to talk to you about is uh, intensive short-term uh, dynamic psychotherapy. Sure. Uh, perhaps you can talk about it, what it is, and how it can uh, help uh, treat uh, anxiety and OCD. Absolutely. So um, many of the concepts that I've been talking about are <laughs> are all kind of rooted in intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. So Habib Davinlu um, is a psychiatrist um, actually in Montreal who um, originated this theory. Um, he was um, in 1960s, 1970s, um, still uh, training people today. Um, I believe he's in his 90s. I've never actually met him, but I've, have uh, trained with uh, a number of people who did train with him. And um, he was looking for the surgical method of psychotherapy. Um, he was um, watched thousands and thousands of hours of videotape of psychotherapy sessions with his patients to better understand the physiological underpinnings of feelings um, of what was happening. And he really kind of used video to help clinicians see these this triangle of conflict in action. Right? We, it, he, you know, you could ask a patient 
So, you know, how are you feeling during that time? Start to notice their foot tapping, start to notice anxiety coming in, and then they might avoid and, and gaze away, right? Very minimal defenses that we could start to understand, oh, this person has, a, has difficulty sitting with and navigating their feelings, and that that's a lot of this work. Um, so it was Davin Liu who helped conceptualize these um, different levels of anxiety um, and really came up with very clear techniques for a therapist to be able to not only watch the body, but also to be able to intervene in ways to help patients watch their own bodies and see their own defenses come in and regulate their own anxiety. And then the end goal being to really be able to deeply feel exactly what they feel um, from present time, but also past that kind of the origins of where this repression of emotion came from. Often the work comes back um, to kind of look at any kind of early attachment trauma that may have kind of set some of these systems, you know, into motion. Um, and so um, ISTDP is traditionally uh, practiced by psychiatrists and psychologists um, who get training from people who, many of whom actually, the, the kind of world leaders trained under Habib Davinlu, and now there's kind of a uh, next generation, I think, of, of providers who are training other therapists to learn these techniques. And, you know, for me, um, as a tra in medical training, I knew that I was interested in psychotherapy, but I didn't really understand what made it different from just kind of going out with a friend for coffee and talking about your problems. Um, and it's not to say that supportive therapy where you do kind of just have a catharsis from talking about what's going on in a safe space isn't, you know, helpful. Um, but this was a therapy that wasn't just helpful in the moment, but it was so clear to me when I could see this really physiologic, the, that mind-body connection of how this really was playing out for other people. I could see it in my own life, right? Um, it was so, I was so drawn to it because it gave me a roadmap to say, how can I help my patients not only just feel better in the moment, but start to understand the mechanisms that are causing distress or suffering in their lives and help them work to undo that and to come up with new mechanisms, um, whether that be you know, less destructive and healthier defense mechanisms or anxiety regulation, or more importantly, a space to look honestly at what they're really feeling, to learn to hold, and understand their complex mixed feelings towards everyone in their lives. And so um, it's been um, uh, just career changing for me. I mean, Bold Health was started as an ISTDB clinic. We're the only ISTDB clinic, I think, in the world. Um, but all of our practitioners are in training. We have become a training facility. So we train other therapists in this model. Um, and um, uh, Alan Abbas out of uh, Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, actually, does a ton of research um, to really show the efficacy of this modality uh, for the treatment of ranging from psychosis to addiction to depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, trauma. Um, and um, I found it to just be incredibly effective with my patients. I still prescribe medications and um, I think that they play um, an integral role for people who are feeling like they're really kind of drowning in their symptoms. It can kind of create a life jacket so that we can then do the work um, uh, to get underneath the symptoms and figure out kind of what's going on. But, um, yeah, I found ISTDP to be, um, just incredibly effective. It's, it, it's, uh, a, on the clinician side, it's a very difficult, difficult model to, uh, to learn, um, because it is so in depth and, and, and so the therapist is so active, um, by, um, really helping the patient start to see these mechanisms, um, and turn against them. Mm -hmm. That's definitely uh, interesting. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about is uh, what are the things that we can do in our daily lives to um, proactively manage our mental health um, and be and have good and sound mental health? Any tips, techniques, exercises? Uh, yeah, yeah, great question. Uh, um, so you, know, you can recommend. Yeah, so I think going back to this um, this idea of uh, creating your own roadmap is really important, and that means first and foremost um, a, a willingness and kind of choosing to say, "I want to get to know me better." And for some people, that's really difficult and anxiety provoking in and of itself. That many people learn to kind of pay attention to others and 
regulate anxiety by trying to regulate everything that's outside of them. But if we can recognize that there will always be <laughs> chaos in the outside world and you know painful things are going to happen and that really for mental stability, I'm going to have to learn to regulate my internal world. And to do that, I have to understand it. And that all of us were raised in different environments with different stories and different feelings that we allow ourselves or don't allow ourselves, different mechanisms that can come up. And so first and foremost is to cultivate a sense of curiosity about ourselves without judgment that just, isn't that interesting? Something happened and then now all of a sudden I'm doing this thing. Huh, I wonder what's going on, right? Can I be curious with myself and see what's going on? In the same way, if we're talking specifically about anxiety, can I be curious about what's happening in my body? So if we conceptualize anxiety as a physiological experience in the body, not the anxious thoughts, but a physiological experience, can I pay attention to that? Can I notice if my jaw is clenched and relax it? Can I notice if I'm holding my breath and restricting and take some deep breaths? Can I attune to myself, in, notice and intervene and attune to myself and see well, if I do this, does it make it feel better or worse? Okay, if I do this, does it make me feel better or worse? That I can start to get to know myself and not, you know, I, I, I started an Instagram that since COVID I have not kept up with, I have to admit, but it was, I, I named it Diagnosis Human. And the idea is that rather than pathologizing ourselves with I'm so anxious or I'm so depressed or, right, I'm so human. How do I understand this with compassion and curiosity rather than with judgment, because so much of what gets in our way of taking care of ourselves is that we're judging ourselves before we even get a chance to take care of ourselves. And then we're in this place of self-judgment. So I would say, for, again, first and foremost is curiosity and a willingness to attune to ourselves, to see what's happening. When it comes to specific levels of anxiety, I can talk about a couple different um, kind of very basic interventions that can be useful. So when we're in strided muscle anxiety, it can be very helpful to do what we call progressive muscle relaxation. So this is where we work systematically through the body, taking some nice inhales and exhales, clenching and releasing the different muscle parts. Because if you remember, the striated muscle is the voluntary muscle that can get activated when we're anxious. So our work then to counter that would be to relax those muscles. And that can be done by first clenching the muscles of the jaw and relax. Shrug your shoulders up and relax them down. Inhaling and exhaling as you go. Clench your hands as tight as you can and then release. And you can work systematically all the way down through the body to create a sense of relaxation. Now, if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're feeling really flooded with anxiety and feeling kind of lightheaded, some of the exercises that we can do are called grounding exercises. And so one of my favorite grounding exercises is, um, I, I, I don't know what the actual name of it is, but I call it five, four, three, two, one. So we first think of thought, look and see in our environment, five things that unique items that we can notice. And we try and give some specificity because if we're feeling kind of floaty, we actually want to ground back into the room and into our body. So first we see five things. So I can see, you know, um, uh, a sparkling water soda can on my desk. I can see um, my mask on my desk. I can see my red phone case. So we identify five unique things. Then four things that I may feel on my skin. So I may feel the hair, um, my hair falling on my neck. I may feel my bottom on the chair, or I may feel my watch on my wrist. Then three things that I hear in the ambient environment. So I may hear traffic in the outside window or the noisemaker that's creating white noise outside my door. Then two things that I, that I smell, and sometimes I have to smell the shampoo in my hair or the detergent in my clothes. And then one thing that I taste. And these, this focus takes us out of whatever thoughts are kind of pulling us away and having us float away and ground us back into our room, into our bodies. And the whole time, always oxygen is going to be one of the key things that we're going to do to help regulate. So we know that oxygen and a prolonged exhale can help us regulate with anxiety. So the last technique thing that I'll tell you about is my favorite breathing exercise, which um, is a ladder to nine. So we know that oxygen helps regulate the nervous system, slow, controlled, steady breath, and especially a prolonged exhale. And so um, this exercise is basically a laddering increase in the duration of the inhale and the exhale. So we start with an inhale for one and an exhale for one. Inhale for two, exhale for two. Inhale for three, exhale for three. 
all the way up to nine. And so prolonging the exhale. So we're bringing our focus again into our own bodies, oxygenating, pausing to take care of ourselves. And I find that, you know, there's um, on YouTube and on the internet and Instagram, right? There's a million different anxiety regulation activities. And one of the biggest barriers that I find is that people don't believe that they'll work. So they don't try. Or as they're doing them in their head, I've heard people say, I, there's this inner monologue that says, oh my God, you're so crazy. I can't believe you're so anxious. You're at the point where you have to like stop and take, do breathing exercises, right? And, and my response is always, yeah, you actually have to breathe. <laughs> like, right? like, yes, uh, you're a human. And that when your anxiety gets high, often the first thing that goes is a tight chest and breath gets restricted. And as a human, you need oxygen. And so this isn't because you're broken or because you're so crazy. This is just anxiety. And if we can allow ourselves to come in again compassionately and to pause and say, okay, no problem. I'm a little anxious. Okay, let's take some breaths, right? And so how we approach our anxiety regulation, I would say is actually even way more important than the technique that we use. Because so often we come in with such a harsh or punitive, like, oh, why are you just, oh, Christy, just get better. Like, stop, right? No, it's okay. I'm anxious. No problem. I'm going to pause and take some breaths. I'm going to take care of myself right now. So this mentality, again, of curiosity and attuning to ourselves is, I think, the primary piece of all of this. Mm -hmm. Those are definitely some, uh, some great tips. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is if, let's say, an OCD person is able to eliminate their anxiety and manages to stay calm, would would that make the symptoms disappear? For many people, it really reduces the symptoms, if not has them go away. Um, so, um, you know, I see this with tic disorder. I see this with OCD symptoms. I see this with stuttering. I see this with all kinds of physical manifestations or behaviors that come. And when anxiety is regulated, the symptoms go away or they abate, right? And so the more that we can come compassionately with ourselves, regulate our anxiety, right? Because even like whether we're talking about the compulsion to check the lock or wash our hands or the compulsion to use a drug, right? The compulsion piece is anxiety. I'm so, oh, I can't sit. I, I have to do it. Well, if I can regulate my anxiety, right? That craving to go do to the, the compulsing will decrease. Now, is it, you know, and none of, none of this is, you know, a purification process. So it's, it's always a response to intervention. So it's helpful for people to, to try it out, to see does what works for me when I do this, does it come down? right? When I do this, does it go up? Right. And, and we often, even though we may have the, ex the corrective experience where, gosh, if I do attune to myself and I do regulate my anxiety, it actually goes away. It doesn't mean that we'll remember that tomorrow. We may still think, oh, it's just, my OCD is just back or my tics, you know, patient that I'm working with who has tic disorder, her tics will get really bad. And then we'll have our session. We'll get clear about what feelings are coming up. We'll regulate her anxiety, get some breath work going and her tics will resolve. And so it's profoundly powerful when we allow ourselves the space to attune to ourselves, to take care of ourselves, and to believe that we have the capacity to do this. Because so many people have been so pathologized by their disorders and said, this is just, your brain's just broken in this way. There's not much you can, you can take some medication and that's it. Um, I would suggest that for many people, and, and not everyone, but for many people, um, by a deeper understanding of what's actually driving the symptoms, Right, we can really get symptom resolution. Mm -hmm. If if let's say uh, an OCD person is not facing a high stress situation, but let's say they have a lot of boredom in their life, mm -hmm. could that trigger OCD symptoms? Absolutely. Yeah, because usually under boredom is a profound sense of loneliness. Right, that if I have nothing going on, right, often I will feel very lonely, and so I will distract. Again, in this very unconscious but maladaptive way, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So if I could acknowledge, how am I feeling when I'm bored? What's underneath that boredom? Wow, I, maybe I don't have a sense of meaning or purpose in my life. 
Maybe mm-hmm. I'm really lonely. And as I acknowledge that, man, what feelings come up, right? First and foremost, probably anxiety and a desire to go to the symptoms, right? But if I can regulate that and I can sit with myself in a tune and see, man, I'm sad about this. What do I want to do to take care of me? But I have to give myself the opportunity to get clear what's driving it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess in that case, it could be OCD could be the coping mechanism to avoid feeling bored, avoid feeling lonely, avoid feeling it. sad. Um, again, it's yep. a flawed coping mechanism, but but that that might be the the idea. But exactly. it's interesting to to see that like um, anxiety is the fuel which on which OCD runs. You if you it. if if you think about it, Absolutely. if you cut, if you cut the fuel supply, then you're kind of starving the OCD monster. You got and, it. And uh, I would say the same for substance abuse, and for many right eating disorder, all all of the above. Absolutely, you're spot on. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, do you? One thing that I'm curious about is is um, does cold showers or cold water uh, does it help um, you become calm or manage your symptoms? I think it depends on the person. Um, I think okay. there are a lot of people for whom um, the cold can kind of just distract away and mm-hmm. can help, uh, you know, and so it really depends. I, I'm always very cautious about anything that would be punitive. So mm-hmm. we don't want to punish ourselves into symptom resolution because it's just going to pop back up somewhere else. So we have to, because because then we're basically saying, you're wrong for having these symptoms, now you get punished, right? And so the punishment model only works for so long. And I see this again and again in addiction of like shaming people into sobriety. And then, you know, once the guilt is worn off, they're back at it because they, again, never got to the underlying cause. So for some people, a cold shower may be invigorating. It may be a great distractor. It may get them kind of shifted to something else. For others, it can be kind of punitive or it may feel miserable, right? And we're just swapping out one bad thing for another. (laughs) So I would say, you know, I'm always going to say response to intervention, right? For some people, and this is the same for meditation and breath work. There's there's a certain breath uh, exercise uh, called box breathing. I can never get my counting right. I, it annoys me. And I'm like, whatever. I'm like, ah, I don't like that one. Right. And so, but for some people, it's like, great. That's like their thing. So you got to find what's your thing. And, and so there is no one size fits all. And that's where pulling back, getting curious about ourselves and saying, yeah, what works for me? What helps me? What makes me feel worse? What, where, what's making my symptoms? If we can just start to get cured. I mean, I'll never forget. I had a patient once who was, came in after relapsing on cocaine and I asked him, you know, well, what happened? And he's like, I don't know. It was like, I was just walking down the street and fell on a pile of cocaine. I was like, okay, like let's pull back here and let's can we be curious about what happened. Right. And he had lost his job and then his relationship got into turmoil and then, right. And he was lonely. And then he was walking down the street and he saw the bar where he used to have had a friend who also happened to be the person who usually supplied his cocaine. And he spent and he went in and they were off to the races. So there was this whole roadmap that if he had been curious, right, if he had noticed how stressed he was with financial difficulties and how that played out in his relationship and how he got aggressive and then the relationship, right, if we had been able to intervene earlier on, we might not have gotten here. But like you said, um, you know, we have to be curious about what's driving the mechanism. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um one thing that I uh, also want to ask, and I think it's very relevant, is is um, the constant use of technology in our lives, uh, yep. from phones, to computers, to tablets, to yep. all the screen time. Do you think? Um, do you think there is an overconsumption of these things that's happening, and and how does that affect uh, anxiety and mental health and Absolutely. and symptoms of mental health problems? Yep. Great question. So I think there are a number of issues with, um, I don't know if you've seen the social dilemma, but it's a great documentary on Netflix about uh, the effects of social media. And so screen time, social media, all of that stuff has definitely been shown to have deleterious effects on um, on our psyche. And there's, an, I think there's a number of different things that we can can look at here and can see as a problem. So part of it is it, beca- it can, beca- can be used to just numb Right. We can just numb ourselves by like, oh, I'm having a conflict. I'm going to I get anxious. I'm just going to avoid 
you know, many lots of people that are like, yeah, I just go in the bathroom and I just like scroll, right? Scroll on Instagram, shopping, scrolling, whatever, news scrolling, Twitter scrolling, whatever it is, it's a way to numb. So numbing can be really destructive because we're not dealing with the root cause or the root issue. And then we can feel guilty over that and we can start to attack ourselves. Or some people will go on sites like Instagram and use them to attack themselves. So they're numbing and scrolling, but they're also comparing and judging and Right. It can be a really toxic environment. Um, it, it keeps us from actually having real communication. So even just over texting, right, that there isn't there is often a lack of actual communication that allows people to see what someone else is feeling, to feel their own feelings, to have that mirroring effect of somebody who's being compassionate with them. And so I think there's a huge emotional disconnect when we're just in front of screens and we're detaching from our own relationships, half, half scrolling and yeah, how was your day? Okay, good. Right. And we're not actually connecting in a deeper way. And I think that, gosh, as a psychiatrist, I'm hugely concerned about the big effects of this and about how this can result, can, um, you know, perpetuate uh, anxiety, depression, social, social isolation, right? And and it's kind of, uh, it's reinforcing this numbing behavior of rather than dealing with what's going on, I've got this quick, easy way to, to, to numb and to zone out. And so then we don't have to regulate our anxiety. If we just go to a screen, I'm not challenging myself to kind of take a deep breath or attune to myself. I'm turning away from me and zoning out in some other way. And so I think it, um, yeah, clearly I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of opinions about social media and about the screen time. And I think that um, I'm, I, I'm excited to see how many people have seen this documentary who are people who are limiting their time. And, you know, as much as I'm, I, I'm skeptical about how much uh, the apps and the phone actually really care about our screen time. I feel like that's kind of like a, <laughs> they're, they're trying to, you know, give us a little bit, but you know, how much that helps, I don't know. But, you know, I think that people are becoming more conscious of this. I think they're being more conscious of how it's affecting their sleep. I think that, um, you know, I've seen some, um, restaurants before COVID who at the bottom of their menu would say, please put your phone away and enjoy the company that you're with. I've seen, you know, um, uh, vacation spots that are kind of highlighting that they don't have internet, that kind of thing, which I just thought was such a cool idea to say, um, how do we um, take control of this? Um, it, again, nothing, it, you know, important in this conversation is that no defense is good or bad. So the things that we do are not good or bad unless they're destructive in our lives. So a glass of wine is not a problem. For bottles of wine being hung over and not being able to go to work creates problems in our lives. And even healthy defenses like going for a run is not necessarily good if I'm running to the point of shin splints. So there's no, no defense that's good or bad. So the, the social media and the phones and the screens aren't intrinsically good or bad, but we have to be, make sure that we're aware, that we're acknowledging, that we're curious and that we're attuning to ourselves. And again, response to intervention, right? There are times when I'll sit back and it feels like, a leisurely Sunday and I'm just kind of scrolling through the news and that feels great. And there are other times when I'm clearly stressed at work and just like scrolling through stuff and, and numbing and being able to attune and to be honest with ourselves. How am I using this? Am I using this in a healthy way or in a destructive way? And can I hold myself accountable to take care of myself around, around these different, you know, different defenses? Mm -hmm. I guess, I guess, yeah, this overconsumption of technology is is also another flawed coping mechanism to turn your mind away from from real problems. Yeah, and, and, it certainly and, can and be. Spend time scrolling and with this instant uh, stimulation and whatnot. So exactly. it's interesting. So we definitely need to be more mindful of this because it certainly affects our mental health, our mental well-being, and and it's good to be aware and to manage how much we consume. Uh, because uh, the idea is not necessarily to cut it all out, but to be more balanced uh, in the way you use it. Exactly. Well, yeah. Christy, it has been uh, very nice uh, speaking with you and and talking about you know mental health and anxiety and OCD and and technology consumption and psychotherapy and and coping mechanisms. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Absolutely, such a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate the experience. Yeah. Um, do you want to share your uh, website? Uh, how can people find you? 
Sure. So um, you can find our clinic, Bold Health, at www.boldhealthinc.com. That's B-O-L-D-H-E-A-L-T-H-I-N-C.com. Um, we're on Instagram at Bold Health Inc. Um, and Twitter as well. Um, and we're actually launching a, a whole new website in the new year. So yeah, check us out online and um, please, uh, anybody can uh, reach out through the, through the website or email me even directly at um, Christy Lamb, MD at boldhealthinc.com. All right, perfect. Uh, well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode and you get a chance to learn about mental health and uh, so many different things about mental health that we discussed. And hopefully you can find some useful tips that you can apply in your personal life to address your mental health needs. And uh, thank you so much for listening to Soncast and stay tuned for more episodes.